Is this trade deal the beginning of a flourishing new relationship where more things get added on to this deal? Or is this really going to be uh, the beginning where we now look back, uh, let's say in two years, look back, this was really the high point of relations. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Megan Rutkai and I am joined by my co-hosts Cameron Brown and Franz Ocelia. Is the Brexit saga coming to an end? On the last day of 2020, the United Kingdom and the European Union signed an important agreement that will define much of the post-Brexit relationship between the two powers. What does this trade and cooperation agreement contain? And how will it impact the economies and politics between and within the EU and the UK? And what does this Brexit agreement mean for the future of relations between the United States and both the UK and EU? To address these important topics, joining us today on the podcast is Professor Matthias Matthäus. Matthias Mathias is an associate professor of international political economy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. His research focuses on the politics of economic crises, the role of economic ideas in economic policymaking, and the politics of regional integration. He teaches courses in international relations and comparative politics. He's also a senior fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations and serves as the chair of the European Union Studies Association. He has also written multiple articles and essays for foreign affairs, foreign policy, and the Journal of Democracy. Thank you so much, Professor Matisse, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. To start us off, what are the key provisions of the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement? What did the European Union and the United Kingdom each hope to achieve with this agreement, and did they achieve it? Yes, that's a great question to get us to get us started, because obviously uh, this has always, from the EU's point of view, been an exercise in, in damage limitation, right? I believe it was Pascal Lamy, the former head of the World Trade Organization, who said this is the first trade agreement in the history of trade agreements where you're erecting new barriers. Most trade agreements, you're taking trade barriers away, be they tariffs, quotas, or non-tariff barriers, right? Regulations and, and so on. So what's in the agreement in very simple terms? This is a very simple uh, run-of-the-mill free trade agreement that uh, focuses on goods trade, much more so than services trade, right? And it achieves the main goal, uh, which both sides set out, that was to have zero tariff, zero quota uh, trade, right? So basically means that any goods produced in the United Kingdom go, can be sold in the European single market without any additional taxes or tariffs or limits to its quantities and vice versa, also true for uh, the European Union. So it, it basically gives a basis for future cooperation as well uh, when it comes to its broad uh, relations, but it does leave a lot of things um, up for future negotiation as well. And I'm wondering in negotiating this agreement, what were some of the major sticking points between the two sides? Yeah, and, and that's another excellent question because it was basically three things that animated most of the discussions of the free trade agreement between the United Kingdom, which roughly started in March 2020, right? So the UK left the European Union, the political institutions of the European Union, just about a year ago on January 31, 2020. And then from March onwards until Christmas Eve last year, they negotiated the future relationship, right? Because 
the UK had expressed a desire to leave the customs union as well as the single market. So the three main sticking points had to do, I think the biggest one was about level playing field uh, conditions, right? So now that Britain left the European Union and also its single market and its customs union, was there now a possibility for it to undercut um, uh, competition, right? To have unfair competition, meaning state aid or have certain regulations that would be, uh, you know, trigger a race to the bottom, right? So let's say lower environmental regulations, easier labor standards, and and so on. So that's something the European Union was very worried about uh, because there was talk about, you know, the UK becoming a Singapore by the Thames, right? That it, that it would be a very low tax uh, regime. So that was the first sticking point. The second main sticking point was about fish, surprisingly, right? So for many people on the UK side, taking back control also meant taking back control of its territorial waters. And so that was leaving the European common fisheries policy and basically give British fishermen and fisherwomen, I suppose, um, a lot more access uh, to these kind of quotas of, of all kinds of fish. So that was a clear was going to be a clear win for the UK and something that the EU would have to give up. The last main point was then the kind of future governance arrangement, right? What if there's any breaking of this treaty? What court do you go to? And there, for the UK, it was it was the UK was adamant that it wasn't going to be the European Court of Justice that was going to judge uh, uh, some of these things, right? That basically the UK was going to be a fully uh, sovereign uh, country. So these were the things that were decided kind of all three together pretty much in December of, of 2020. And there was kind of a consensus, a middle of, of the road uh, agreed classic compromises that made this deal possible. I'm wondering how that compromise looked in terms of the EU's concern for a level playing field. How did the EU um, sort of you know, allay its concerns about that and what sorts of conditions did the UK have to accept? Yeah, so it was agreed in the end, the principle was agreed that if any company in Europe or in Britain, for that matter, of course, this is reciprocal, right? This is, goes just as well for British businesses worried about unfair competition from Europe, that they could flag this and that they could have a very urgent procedure of a panel that would look at this and judge uh, whether retaliation was was justified, right? So in speed, of course, is of the essence here, because let's say you're a company, you get a big grant or a big subsidy from a local or, or, the, or the national government, and that allows you to sell your products 25% cheaper in the European market, you could drive out all European companies out of business very fast, right? And so there had to be a mechanism in which both sides accepted the right for the other side to retaliate, right? And so that would make it much less likely that these uh, conditions would, would emerge in, in the first place. So given these were the main sticking points, do you think that one side or the other gained more in the deal? Or do you think it was balanced on the whole? Is there a clear winner? Yeah, I mean, the, the honest answer is, is that both sides lose, right? From the status quo, where there was much more integrated trade and much less paperwork, and it was much easier to do business. Um, you could say that this deal does look better from the EU's point of view, from the simple reason that it is a deal in goods. And so if you export 
a lot of your goods in the case of Germany, for example, cars, machine tools, and, and so on, a big manufacturing country. For them, it was very important that they would not face tariffs or quotas when they entered a very lucrative UK market, right? The, the UK has much less of a comparative advantage in many of these manufactured goods. And so for them, this was maybe less important. And so when it comes to services, which is 80% of the British economy, there's actually very little that the UK uh, got from this. And so you could say um, it was a good deal for the EU. That said, you know, what Boris Johnson as prime minister set out that he wanted, his red lines, he achieved, right? He, uh, he took back control uh, to some extent over uh, British waters, over its borders. It can control immigration again. And it, it did get this kind of basic free trade deal, which is what exactly what they set out uh, they wanted. Of course, the UK was willing to pay this price uh, economically, especially in the short term or in the medium term, because they would gain certain political powers that was important, right? Like uh, being able to have its own trade policy now going forward. It could have a trade deal with China, with India, with the United States. It could only do this uh, as a member of the EU. The EU would have to negotiate this and it couldn't do this on its own. Um, and of course, the control of immigration, I think, was 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 a great prize for um, the pro-Brexit government that's currently uh, in charge. And how has this agreement been received by um, you know, citizens in the EU, citizens in the UK? And I understand that you know, even citizens within countries might have you know, very divergent opinions, but maybe in a general sense, how has this agreement been received? Yeah, so it's, it's a kind of interesting contrast here. I think for most of the European Union side, so the European continent, with the exception of Ireland, uh, where this was followed very closely because of its close relationship with the UK, of course, the Irish border with Northern Ireland and, and, and the, the history there. Uh, but for much of Europe, I think it was most mostly relief, right, that there was a deal, that there wasn't the kind of UK crashing out of the single market and the customs union, as many had warned would have been possible, as it even looked more likely than not by mid, uh, by early to mid-December, because, uh, you know, the negotiations seemed completely stuck on uh, the three um, sticking points that we discussed earlier. In, so relief that it that it went ahead and kind of a certain quiet resignation that, you know, it's sad that they have fully left the European Union, but that's what they chose. And that's what that, that's there's nothing we can do about this. In the UK, there was a very different reaction because, of course, the different nations that make up the United Kingdom um, voted differently on the Brexit referendum to begin with. Right. So Scotland voted 62 percent to remain. Northern Ireland voted 56 percent to remain. This was always much more of an English vote uh, to leave the European Union. So I think half of England was very happy uh, that this saga was finally over. Right. And that there was indeed a trade agreement that achieved the goals that the Johnson government set out. I think the other half that voted remain, uh, again, quiet resignation um, and, you know, still sadness that they, there are certain rights that they lost, right? Whether it's to live and work in the EU, right? That, and then I think in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, more of a kind of awareness that, you know, this was fundamentally changing their constitutional makeup, right? For Northern Ireland, for unionists especially, this was suddenly a realization that these these controls in the Irish Sea, customs controls, uh, were going to get real and that basically Northern Ireland was going to drift further apart 
from the rest of Great Britain because it's remaining in the single market for goods um, for regulatory purposes, right, to avoid the border on the island of Ireland. And in Scotland, I think among the, the people who support independence in the last 30 opinion polls have shown that that's a significant majority, especially among very young people who want to become independent now. Uh, this was more like the beginning of something new, right? The, the fight for independence. And they could now say, this is a deal that does not benefit us at all. And then, of course, in the last month, we've seen different reactions from different industries, right? Especially, uh, you know, the, the fisheries industries now realize they may well have a bigger quota and that they'd be able to catch more in British waters, but it's much harder to sell it in the European market. The food processing industry has seen all kinds of non-tariff barriers where they used to be the food packing hub for Europe, and it's going to be hard to remain that way. In finance, there was immediate shifts of assets from London to Dublin to Frankfurt and so on. So it's, it's been a mixed reaction, but I think the overwhelming reaction is that this is better than the alternative, which was to crash out of the European Union at, much high, at, a, at a much higher cost. So we talked about the different provisions of this agreement, and we discussed sort of what each hoped to achieve and what resulted from this deal. but Say we live in a world where the EU and the UK had not yet reached this agreement. What do you think would have happened? Yeah, and and this would have been um, this would have been made a lot worse by, of course, the current condition of of the pandemic. But if you think about the EU UK relationship, basically everything that governs the 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 crossing of borders, right, of the the travel of people, of goods, of services. Any uh, lawyer that flies to from the UK that flies to Frankfurt to give legal advice, um, the airline industry, right, road haulage, things like this. This the whole legal framework for this was provided by its membership to the European Union, right? Um, and so, if there hadn't been a deal, they would have had. They would have first of all been a significant diplomatic breakdown in relations. This would have been a, a, a real diplomatic failure of two you know, allied countries, Western countries, democratic countries, who couldn't sort out their differences and, and kind of put in place an agreement that both would benefit from and lose from if they didn't have it. Um, and then it would have taken months to you know, have kind of bespoke agreements of every single industry, of all kinds of other things. Uh, so there wouldn't have been a legal framework for planes to take off from Heathrow to fly to Charles de Gaulle Paris Airport, right? They, they would have the, the Eurostar that operates between Brussels and London and London and Paris wouldn't have had a legal framework. So all these things were solved by having a deal. And I think the second main point of what, what the consequences would have been if they, they hadn't been a deal is uh, this would have had real consequences for the uh, situation in Northern Ireland, right? It would have made uh, relations between Northern Ireland and Ireland much harder. It would have questioned whether the withdrawal agreement that was agreed a year earlier, right? The, basically the divorce deal. We're now talking about the future relationship, but the divorce deal, which was agreed a year ago, some of these clauses that the UK government had already said that they may have to suspend because of no deal. And so basically a lot of pain uh, and, and chaos uh, business chaos and, and chaos at airports and borders has, has been avoided. That said, it's still, uh, we'll, we'll still see all kinds of growing pains because without a doubt, even this deal 
erects new barriers and creates all kinds of new paperwork and visa requirements and so on, which, uh, which are still playing out um, as we speak. So to avoid the, 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 the difficulties that you discussed that would sort of result from a uh, you know, no-deal agreement, how do you th the EU is sort of placed in this sort of, in this difficult position to kind of balance its own prerogatives and to keep its own um, organization together while still figuring out these differences between itself and the United Kingdom? How do you expect this deal to affect the behavior of those Eurosceptic parties in the European Union member states that are anti-EU? And do you think the EU showed enough resolve to scare these parties through this deal, given their precarious situation they were in before? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I guess the answer would depend on whether you think that the deal that was agreed on Christmas Eve between the EU and the UK consider, is, is a high point in the relationship between uh, the EU and the UK, and it's all going to go downhill from here. And then I think Eurosceptic parties are going to have a much harder time to make the case that leaving the EU has great benefits, right? Uh, or is this a low point in the relationship? Is this just the beginning of a much stronger relationship that both sides will build on? And then I think Eurosceptic parties will have a much stronger argument, right? Where they say, hey, you know, look at the UK. It's thriving. It's not doing so badly, right? Uh, that said, it's, it's much easier to make the case for leaving the EU if you're not in the Eurozone and if you're not in Schengen, right? And, and I think what, what was important on the EU side is to show that leaving the EU is hard and that it comes with certain costs, right, um, economically and, and financially. And I think they managed uh, to, to do this. Of course, during the whole Brexit saga, starting in June uh, 23, 2016, when they voted to leave, Eurosceptic parties have slowly changed their tune on EU membership, right? So they've, they've become much less willing to talk about exit, exiting the European Union, then they are now considering taking over EU institutions and create a much di a very different EU, an, an EU that you know they, they would like to see that gives more powers to member states and, and so on, right? So you've seen this with Marine Le Pen in France and the Front National, you see this with even Orban, right, uh, in, in Hungary. They don't talk much anymore about leaving the EU, but for them, Euroscepticism is more kind of a vehicle to say we want a very different EU, right? We want a much more um, you know, responsive EU that allows national flexibility um, and, and gives much more discretion to, to governments in, in choosing uh, you know, how, how to, to govern their, their countries. And of course, it, one has to have some sympathy for that, right? From both the left and, and the right, right? Is that there, there's something to be said for, for countries to, to have their own freedom to decide things. But um, yeah, what are, what are they their vision of Europe, of Eurosceptic parties, is compatible with the vision of center-right and center-left parties is, of course, a very different story. So you discussed a couple times during these past couple questions about the several geopolitical issues that are hinged to this deal. And perhaps most importantly, and you did touch upon this a bit earlier, is a matter of what happens between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. How, how does this deal truly affect that relationship at the border, if you could speak about that a little more clearly. Yeah, and this, this, is, this goes to the heart of, 
of what I think people are most worried about with Brexit. And it's been in the news in just the last few days because of the kind of emerging vaccine nationalism that we are seeing in, in, in Europe and I guess everywhere else in the world is that there was a brief worry uh, in last Friday in, in Brussels that vaccines that the UK government has paid for, for from similar companies, right, from Pfizer, uh, especially here, that the UK was paying more for this and that these companies were now prioritizing sending their vaccines to the UK as opposed to the rest of Europe. And so they were even briefly considering closing the border in Ireland, the, the Northern Irish border um, with, with the Republic of Ireland, because they were worried that, you know, they, they basically would, companies would export through the back door uh, more vaccines to the UK and, and less to the rest of the EU. Of course, that immediately triggered alarm bells in London and in Dublin and in Belfast, and so they've decided against this. But it shows you how precarious this agreement is, right? Because um, the Northern Ireland is, for all political purposes, of course, part of the UK. That hasn't changed. But from a regulatory point of view, in the future, Northern Ireland, if it wants to keep its border open with the Republic of Ireland, with Dublin, it will have to follow EU regulations, which it won't have a say over because it's not a member politically of the European Union, right? And so most of the border checks of customs uh, procedures and so on are now happening within the Irish Sea on ships. And so it's not that visible for the people who live either in, in Great Britain or in, in Northern Ireland, but it, it will mean over time that Northern Ireland is gonna grow closer to the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the EU and further away from um, uh, Great Britain. And that's the great worry, of course, of, of unionists uh, who tend to be Anglican and, and, and Protestant and tend to be valued their union, union with the rest of Great Britain much more so than their relationship with, with Ireland. Of course, from a kind of uh, Republican, Catholic, mostly Catholic, uh, Northern Irish point of view, this only, you know, allows them to dream more about Irish reunification, right? And it's my understanding that there's now small majorities in favor of what's known as a border poll, which would allow Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to have a referendum on whether they should uh, reunify, right? And which, of course, would, would be a disaster from a kind of unionist uh, pro-UK point of view, because they would, they would have voted for Brexit, as many of them did. Uh, but then would actually this would result in the break breakup of of the union, right? And what we've seen is that it's really the unionists uh, that are that are worried about this new Brexit deal and about this withdrawal agreement, right? That this will create a wedge between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, meaning Great Britain, right? Great Britain, which has Scotland, Wales, and England as the biggest parts of it, and that this will over time lead to maybe more unionists leaving Northern Ireland and moving to England or, or um, Wales, and that this will actually create the momentum for reunification of, of the island, right? That's, that's not something that's gonna happen next year or two, but it's definitely something that you could see a path towards this over the next 10 years. So another significant issue and perhaps another uh, challenge to the to, to the future of the United Kingdom would be the would be Scotland. Um, and how do you think this deal affects the relationship between this between Scotland, excuse me, and the British government going forward, especially with regards to this uh, perceived march towards independence? 
Yeah, Scotland is is almost is a, in a, in a way a trickier question, right? I mean, um, Northern Ireland we, we're, is a very small population, right? Less than 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 two million, and there's a precedent here, right? In 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 1990, when Germany reunified, East Germany was not a member of the EU, and then it became a member of the EU basically overnight once Germany reunified, and so that would be the scenario that that would play out in the case. Um, you know, Irish reunification happens in a kind of legal legal way. Scotland faces a harder climb because here they would first have to become a newly independent nation, and that would, if they want to do this, follow the legal route and avoid the the kind of illegal route that Catalonia followed uh, a few years ago. Um, Westminster and you know the the government, uh, the British government, the UK government would have to allow another referendum to take place, like David Cameron, former British Prime Minister, allowed in 2014. And of course, then they voted 55-45 to remain a member of of the United Kingdom. Um, as I mentioned, you know this, uh, this is not not a, a this is not what the Scottish wanted. The Scottish Nationalist Party is you know spinning electoral yarn from this uh, because they're pointing out that you know London is doing what's not in the wishes or the best interests of the Scottish people and there's new you know local elections regional elections coming up in May where everybody is expecting the Scottish Nationalist Party to do very well and to kind of gain a, an absolute majority of the Scottish Parliament which would then give them a platform to ask for another referendum and campaign for uh, independence from the UK they can say legitimately that this is a very different situation now that the UK has left the European Union. But there's, there's some real questions about Scottish independence, right? I mean, what's going to happen to its debt? What's going to happen to its currency? What's going to happen to the border with between Scotland and England, right? Because as much as the border issue in Northern Ireland was real and problematic, uh, it's hard to imagine a land border and physical posts uh, on the um, between England and Scotland in the north of England, right? And so it, what's striking is that some Scottish independence believers who were staunch anti-Brexit and were pointing out that the border issue with Northern Ireland was not going to be able to be solved are now saying, well, maybe we can use technological ad advan advances or technological solutions for, for this border. So it, it's, it's not that easy as it sounds, right? Even though there is an overwhelming majority among especially anybody below 40 years old is in favor of it. Older people are less enthusiastic about it. But if, if a referendum would be held tomorrow, it, it, it could be won, right? But I think that the devil will be in the detail of exactly uh, what, what would be the economic cost uh, of this. And so what, what's striking is that the Scottish nationalists will now have to make the case that it is worth the, the temporary economic cost to leave the UK and then they would be free to join the European Union. But here then the question is, do they want to join the euro? Do they want to join the Schengen zone? And, and how easy will it be and how long will it take for them to, to become members of, of the European Union? So these are all things that uh, will need to be addressed in any sort of discussion uh, of Scottish independence. right? So the, the climb is actually quite steep um, in the case of Scotland. Professor Matej, um, now that the UK has negotiated this trade agreement with the European Union. Now that Brex the Brexit saga is pretty much over, what can we expect the contours of a US-UK trade agreement to look like whenever they get together and, and negotiate it? When do you anticipate that we could see such a deal? 
Yeah, while this is in many ways a, a big prize for the UK government, especially there is a subsection of the Conservative Party in the UK that greatly values, you know, the, the tradition of free trading Britain and they, the, the kind of buccaneering Britain that like is, is global, right, is a global Britain. And of course, they always look to the United States as a much more dynamic, like-minded partner than looking at the continent and, and Berlin and Paris or, or Germany and, and, and France. The problem, of course, they have is that there, there is a new administration in Washington, D.C., the, the Biden administration, for which priority one, two, and three is fighting the pandemic, right? Trade deals are not very high on its agenda. Um, and it's also clear that their trade skepticism is actually a con will be in continuation of the Trump administration, even though for different reasons, right? Much more from a kind of labor and labor union uh, point of view, right? That, that mistrusts new trade deals. I think any new trade deal between the US and the UK will be a tough sell domestically for the United Kingdom for the simple reason that what the United States will want out of a trade deal is access for its agricultural products uh, in, in the UK market, which will be hard because that's exactly what the UK has negotiated with the EU and it, it will create problems for that relationship. They will want to open up the NHS, the National Health Service for American pharmaceuticals. And I think that's not something that's going to be very popular amongst the UK public because they're, they're going to worry that their drug prices are going to um, go up. And then, of course, last uh, point is going to be financial services, right? Uh, the, the U.S. is going to want bigger access to the city of London, very lucrative market for financial services. And so it's not clear that the things that the U.S. would really want from a trade deal um, is really something that's going to be easy to sell uh, domestically. So that's why I, I don't think uh, this will happen anytime soon. I mean, you could see... If a Biden administration uh, maintains its majorities in the House and the Senate, that this become that the pandemic is over, let's let's hope and pray for this. Um, that they can start talking about doing a trade deal maybe in 2022, 2023. It's definitely possible, but I think it's it's not going to be it's not going to be replacing the close relationship they had with the European Union simply for from a geographical point of view and also because it's going to be politically. Uh, very, very sensitive, right? So this is more something that a minority within the Conservative Party dreams about, but is not widely shared uh, among the UK um, electorate. And to wrap us up, we like to look towards the future to end our podcasts. So I want to know what long-term issues are, do you think are still lingering between the United Kingdom and the European Union post-Brexit? What is, what is left to, to fix? Yeah, so a big question is, of course, the future of the United Kingdom, right? Can it can it stay together? Can it keep? Can it hang on to Scotland? Can it hang on to Northern Ireland? Uh, it's going to be a real challenge, I think, to make this Northern Irish protocol work, right? Because you are dealing with um, a part of a sovereign nation, uh, Northern Ireland, as a part of the United Kingdom, that will have to follow regulations that it has no say and no vote over. Uh, they can be maybe closely consulted, but they won't have, in the end, a say or a veto or anything uh, like this. Um, whether the EU, now that it's you know finally gotten rid of its most difficult member, meaning the UK, can actually move forward in its own visions 
of open strategic autonomy. And it's also still a big question mark, right? Whether um, the relations with the big three, meaning relations with Russia, relations with China, relations with the United States, whether the UK and the EU are going to think alike on this approach or whether this is going to create tensions, right? And it's easy to see when it comes to dealing with China that the Boris Johnson government is much more closely aligned with the United States and the EU wants to go its own course, right? So that could create uh, trouble. Similar with Russia, right? Traditionally, Germany believes in what they call Wandel durch Handel, meaning change through trade, that a close relationship with Russia will make the regime uh, more acceptable uh, to, to the West, right? A lot of people have pointed out that this has never really worked, but there may well be very different approaches between the EU and the UK when it comes to dealing with Russia. And, and even when it comes to dealing with the United States, right? It, it's going to be interesting to see whether the Biden administration prioritizes its relationship with the EU and Germany and France over its relationship uh, with uh, London. It is the bigger economic partner. So you, you could see all kinds of tension uh, come out of this. And I think the big question is, and it's something we discussed uh, earlier in this podcast, is... Um, is this trade deal the beginning of a flourishing new relationship where more things get added on to this deal, where it becomes easier to do services trade in the future, where it becomes easier to do educational exchanges again, and all these sorts of things? Or is this really going to be uh, the beginning where we now look back, uh, let's say in two years, look back, this was really the high point of relations uh, in, in Christmas 2020. And it's really been very difficult and there's constant tension because of the incompleteness of this agreement, right? So um, that, that I think, is, is, is going to be the big question for UK-EU relations. And why do I focus on this so much is because, in the end, um, for this government, for the Boris Johnson government, which is going to basically has a mandate until May 20, uh, actually, in December, December, until December 2024, so that's almost another four years that this government has, they have to prove now to their electorate that Brexit is working, right? And we all know it was sold on, you know, not always the truth, right? It was sold on, you know, we were all going to benefit from this. And of course, there's rights that have been taken away from UK citizens from leaving uh, the EU that is now becoming more and more clear and trade is harder and there's going to be all kinds of uh, problems. And so they have every interest in fighting with the EU and saying that everything that goes wrong going forward uh, politically in the, in the UK, they could say, well, it's because of Brussels is being difficult, right? Or they, they promised us they were going to agree on this, but now they're going back on it and, and so on. And so that's why I, I actually think in the end, the Biden administration will have to use its good services of mediation between London and Brussels and sometimes play the bridge rather than the UK being the bridge between the US and Europe. Uh, the US is going to have to uh, sometimes come in between its two you know, valued NATO members and partners and, and so on and say, okay, can we sort out your differences? And so that I think is going to be interesting to watch uh, in, in the longer term. In the short term, we'll have to see whether you know they can cooperate when it comes to its vaccination strategy and getting out of the pandemic. And that's already causing uh, all, all kinds of tensions. So um, there's, there, there's some reasons to be optimistic. Both sides gain from closer cooperation and so on. And there's obvious win-win scenarios there. But you can also be more cynical and, and be a kind of more short-term uh, political calculus also drives 
towards the EU showing that leaving has costs and the UK is showing that, you know, all its problems are still uh, because of um, the EU's intransigence when it comes to being in good faith when it, uh, when it comes to this deal. Well, certainly the entire Brexit saga, you know, even beyond the economic ramifications, you know, it's really changed the geopolitical landscape. And for that reason, it's opened so many questions, so many different pathways for the future, as you've suggested. And this deal is such an important stepping stone um, in that process. So we are so grateful that we were able to have you here to elucidate some of the future options for us and really explain the nuts and bolts of this deal for our listeners. So thank you again for joining us. You're very welcome. This was fun. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.